Welcome to episode 165, When the Lights Don't Sparkle, Managing Grief During the Holidays, featuring London Miller, licensed marriage and family therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias and I am really excited to be spending this time with Dr. London Miller. I asked her to join us today to have a conversation not only about grief, but particularly grief during the holidays. And this is one of the things that she is really good at and she specializes in working around grief. So I asked her to come here and share her knowledge with us. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much, Beth, for, for having me. I'm super excited to dive in. Absolutely. So before we jump into this topic, why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and how you came to specialize in this particular work? Yeah, sure. I'm born and raised in Southern California. I've moved around quite a bit for my education. That took about 13 years. I would describe myself as a butterfly. I'm very adventurous. I love traveling and writing and reading. Just I love different cultures. So because I am curious, I think that translates into my work as a therapist. I think that helps my work as a therapist. Um, and I've been doing this work for eight, going on nine years now. I mainly, um, well, I started in community mental health with high-risk Medi-Cal clients, a lot of trauma, and I would say trauma, grief has been something that has really just caught my attention professionally. So right now I'm in private practice. I primarily work with adults now on a range of things, depression, anxiety, identity, grief, of course. So yeah, that's where I am now. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, this topic is meaningful for me. I know it's meaningful for a lot of folks. It's a hard thing for us to talk about. I think specifically grief during holidays or during other major life events that are supposed to be very joyful, very sparkly. When you are hurting, when you're feeling alone or separate, whatever it is, it the juxtaposition is just so painful. And you know, for any of our listeners who have been there themselves or who are watching it in their loved ones or in their clients, I, I see you and I feel you. And before we started recording, I was telling Dr. Miller that this topic is, um, it hits, it really hits home for me because a dear family member to me was diagnosed with a really severe condition right before Thanksgiving. And that every year now is that anniversary effect and how difficult and how painful that was, especially the first year that it was going on. But but every year it comes back and I can feel it in my body. Um, so thank you for coming and talking about this topic because if it's happening in our hearts and souls, then it's happening in the hearts and souls of our clients and we need to be equipped to help support folks. So on that note, why don't we dive in? Um, what is your definition of grief? How do you define grief and loss? What checks the boxes of what that really means clinically? Great question. I mean, my mind immediately goes to like the clinical like DSM 
version of grief. But if I were to sprinkle my personal experience on that, I would say it's, um, you know, the experience of, of losing something that, that was, that meant a lot to us, something that we were attached to that can be a routine. It can be an object. It can be a place of work. And I think as we discuss it more commonly, we, we you use grief to discuss people and our relationships with people. So it can also refer to a loss of a relationship or an important person in our life. Um, that loss doesn't necessarily have to do with death. You know, it could be the loss of a friendship, that, that friendship changed. Like I said, that routine just no longer is available to us, that highway no longer exists. I can't take that same way to work anymore. So I have to adjust and change what my, what I'm doing. So yeah, it can involve death or just a, cha- a change in, in life. Thank you. I think one of the things that I've heard come up with clients is so often we really are trained to only associate grief with quote unquote grief and loss and that it pertains specifically to usually death and dying and that it really is so much bigger than that. And I'm glad for the examples that you just brought up to appreciate basically the difference between how we thought or hoped things were going to be and how they actually are. And that for me, grief is that space in between those two ideas Um, But I think a lot of this conversation, even with clients is around psychoed of like, no, that's grief. (laughs) Like what you're feeling is grief. You're grieving something. Right. Or what I didn't get. Yes. I I hear that come up a lot in therapy, you know, as people talk about their childhoods or even maybe in their marriage or a relationship, elements of something I'm not getting or something in the past that I didn't get. I think that's another important consideration is that layer of what's missing and grieving what may have been. And then also that element sometimes of invisible grief that, you know, an example that often comes up is like if someone is wanting to become pregnant, for example, and they're unable to, that's an invisible grief. It's an invisible loss um, that they may be coping with. And so too often, I think we we as a society can oversimplify and say, well, grief is always about death and dying. And I think it's a lot more than that. And maybe one of the hindrances to us ever talking about it is because we've really kind of backed it into a corner where it is much bigger than just that category. Right. And that kind of highlights the different types of griefs. Um, There are so many, I can't even, but there's like complicated grief, there's traumatic grief, there's disenfranchised grief, which is also what you just described, that invisible, um, basically when a grief doesn't get kind of that acknowledgement, it's not out in the forefront. It's, yeah, it doesn't get named, that invisible, um, and plenty more in addition to those types of grief. So on some of those that you just named, Can you give us the 101 version? What is traumatic grief? What is complicated grief? What do these terms mean? And how are they different from what I'll call simple grief? Wow. Great questions. I would say in my clinical experience, traumatic grief, I think is accompanied by like an element of like fear. Like when we think of trauma, we think of like fear or loss of control sense of powerlessness or 
you know, also maybe our character, I am bad or I should have done something. It can be related to those different categories. So when I've seen grief that's tra- traumatic, I've seen like a a, a layer of, of like this fear, this I'm not safe, you know, a loss of control. I feel really helpless and that wound gets really stuck there and this like I'm helplessness. What am I going to do now? So when I see it accompanied by a sense of helplessness and powerlessness, which has a big fear emotion to it, that's when I, I kind of will name it more in the trauma side. You know, when I see those trauma symptoms, if that makes sense. It does. And then, yeah, complicated, I think, is when the intensity does not decrease over time. You know, it's like I, it still feels really fresh. It still feels really intense. Like it just happened. And is part of that because it's not necessarily a resolving grief? So, and we'll get into this, but there are some kinds of grief out there that rear their head, so to speak, because of the continuing trauma around them. So a child that is ill, for example, the parents may find themselves in situations that their their child's unable to participate in certain activities or certain social norms. And it's not just, oh, this this child has this illness, but that it it has this unrelenting component that it keeps building and it keeps coming back. And these losses just keep kind of compounding. Absolutely. And I think that kind of ties into the factors that affect our grief and how we grieve, like the number of losses can contribute to whether grief is simple or becomes more complicated or traumatic. Also our attachment style, you know, how particularly around separation So depending on how separation was facilitated and handled by our parents when we were children, that is definitely going to impact how we experience grief today as adults. Also, if we have other emotional or physical illnesses, those things will impact how we grieve and our style of grief. So yeah, all of those things. But I've noticed when folks have experienced a lot of losses or they have had... um, Uh, maybe a lot of abandonment or particularly just tough abandonment wounds, then that's when I've noticed the grief can become a little bit more complicated or traumatic. Yeah, because it's that compounding, like you said. And you had mentioned disenfranchised. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. I think um, in the case of like non-kin relationships or relationships that are not socially acceptable, like you know, like um, someone you're having an affair with, say a married man was married and then his he has a has a girlfriend. That's grief that can maybe not get acknowledged or seen as as real. Or if if I have a a close friend that I'm grieving, like that grief can become disenfranchised by an employer or by society at large because well, it wasn't it wasn't your family member, so it doesn't mean as much. Oh. You can't have a baby, but, you know, tough luck. Like, we all deal with that. No, that's loss. But because it's not kind of, like, formed in these, like, oh, well, they died or, you know, it was was my husband or my wife or that was my cousin. Because it's kind of these um, unconventional relationships, that grief can become more disenfranchised. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's a really important layer to think about is is how – 
does society view the grief and whether or not it's acceptable? Exactly. And exactly. I, for folks who are listening that are interested in, in more learning on grief, we have had some really interesting conversations, particularly with Jill Johnson Young about grief. And one of the things that she talks about is often there's a sense we were talking specifically about um, intimate partner loss but there's this idea that there's like a timeline on grief. And so it's like, it's acceptable for you to be upset or hurting or discombobulated or whatever it is for a certain period of time. And then it's like, okay, well, then we move on. Or are you moving on too quickly based on what society says you should do? And like these very real and often unstated rules about what's acceptable to grieve and how we're supposed to grieve that just exacerbates it and makes it more painful. Exactly. Yeah. Now understanding grief, not just as about death and dying, when you are viewing this clinically, knowing that there's much to be said just on grief alone, but adding this layer of particularly the holidays or significant life events, going to somebody's wedding and you're supposed to be happy, going to a baby shower and you're expected to be thrilled, whatever it is, and you're just not there. How do you see that play out clinically and what do we need to keep in mind as providers about that juxtaposition? I see it playing out clinically by, you know, triggering people. It's uh, people get uneasy when it comes to attending those events or, you know, entering into situations that they know are triggering for them or just when the holidays come around, it just creates that 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 shadow of like, oh, man, it's either a negative reminder of the past or a reminder of the loved one that's not here to suspend this event with them. So, yeah, it's very triggering. It's a strong reminder of, of that loss. So that's why I think it's important clinically for us to encourage a DBT skill, which is coping ahead. And coping ahead is when we prepare ahead of time for a triggering situation, you know, and the holidays are triggering because society projects this, uh, these expectations onto us that one, you should agree with this holiday and two, that you should feel good about it. And are, are those culturally sensitive? No. <laughs> and then emotionally, it's like, well, that's not sensitive either. We're just projecting this like, well, you should just feel this way about this day, you know. Tell me more about coping ahead because yes, like regardless of what that event or situation is, we often have, I mean, you just, you need only to walk into a drugstore to see half an aisle around greeting cards about how great something is, whether that's Mother's Day or a baby shower or graduation or Christmas and that's not always the case. So tell me more about your application of coping ahead and what that looks like. Right. This list is really long. It it looks like telling my telling ourselves, you know, I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes, like say you're at a baby shower, say it's Christmas or a holiday. I'm going to set aside some time if I need a break to go to the bathroom and just like feel my emotions or write, jot some things down in my phone, like emotionally, some keywords of what's coming up for me. And then after that 10 to 15 minutes is over, then I can go back to what I'm doing. It looks like, okay, I'm going to be intentional about practicing gratitude. 
the morning of Christmas or if I'm at the baby shower or, you know, even during the, the fall season, I'm going to intentionally practice gratitude, you know, because it gets our mind also kind of oriented around, well, what, what do I have? What, what, is, what is going on in my world? I am still here. Um, it can also look like doing the holidays differently. So if Nana used to bake this style of cookies, like, do we want to create a new tradition, you know, where I, I, I make that style of cookies or we're going to try a new style and mix it up? Like, we can honor old traditions and create new ones. Or it also looks like not doing the holidays, like giving yourself permission to not do it. And I, I recently told a client this recently, like, if you don't feel like you're going to be present and like they're actually like in tune and involved, like it's okay to say, give yourself permission to just call it off this year, you know? And I would say learning mindfulness skills to help us deal with our emotions. I would put that at the top of the list because that helps us deal with the stuff as it comes up. As we said, this is not a linear step-by-step thing. This is a conscious feminine process of, this is a lifestyle thing. How do I deal with my emotions in general? Because grief is, it's, it's an emotion. I think that part is really important. The idea that these feelings, I, I call them unpleasant emotions because um, they're right. not negative. I'm like, it's not bad. Like it's unpleasant for us, but like they're adaptive. They're evolutionary. We're supposed to get angry. We're supposed to feel Unfortunately, we're supposed to feel shame. Like that is a social motivator. You know, like there are there are reasons for these things. They're terribly unpleasant. Um, but I think even just that idea of like, it's okay to grieve. Grieving is normal. Grieving is healthy. And making space and time to feel that. Um, I know, you know, only speaking from my experience, when we got this diagnosis and and the ground dropped out from underneath us and just unbelievable fear and stress and sadness, when it was juxtaposed with like, it's so good to see you. Happy Thanksgiving. You know, like it was just like, it was such a stark contrast that was really jarring. Like I, I remember and I'm a highly sensitive person. So I think that's even more notable for me, you know, for folks who are highly sensitive or any kind of neurodiversity. But this idea of just how much it almost emphasized my sense of disconnect, because there was a social expectation that I should be really full of gratitude, that I should be really grateful for whatever connection was in front of me, while I was privately crying myself to sleep. You know what I mean? Like, and it was like, well, I don't want to talk about the bad or scary thing because I feel some pressure to not quote unquote, bring anybody down. And like, it's just such an intimate and can be lonely experience that in my reflection back on that, that, you know, that, that was part of why I wanted to reach out to you of like, how do we clinically help pave the way for the folks who are going through that? Because it's hard enough to be grieving when it's up against the backdrop of yay, whatever the yay is, is like stark. <laughs> I would say helping people, well, first, maybe giving some psychoeducation around like how society at one point, we were a little bit more connected to death 
than we are now. I think now we have this denial of death. Like back in the 1800s, it was the family's responsibility to prep the body. Like as grandma was dying, when she died, like the, 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 the son would dig her grave. You know, it was it was aunt's job to inform the neighbors that, you know, come say your goodbyes. They would have the funeral services at the house, you know. So over time, we have more of this distance between us and death because now we have professionals and businesses that handle this process. So I think kind of sharing with folks that, you know, we were once more connected to grief. It was more normalized. So it, it is a human experience. And to kind of trust that grief is a part of healing and then helping people identify those safe, safe spaces for them to kind of just share what they do miss about their loved one. It may not be with their family. You know, it may be with some safe friends or I think grief groups are amazing because I think it normalizes and sort of humanizes the grief for us. And I think that's what a lot of clients need. So it, I think they need to know, like, it's okay and actually trust that emotion of grief, but find safe places where you can hold that emotion. I completely agree. And in, in my experience of grief and in, in my treatment of grief, seeing the importance of those safe places, identifying very clearly where those spaces are and and the possibility that you also might get it wrong. And so you might think somebody right. is going to be there, that they're going to be a safe space and you say whatever the scary or sad thing is. And then it just hits the wall and it slides down the wall to the floor and you go, that didn't go as planned of like, well, how do we recalibrate when we think that somebody can hold space for us and they can't. And the other piece too is that psychoed component that you know, again, grief is much bigger than just death and loss. And also that um, you and I were talking before we started recording, there was a study that was released in 2021 talking about grief and particularly in the landscape of like the holiday season. So we're looking at, you know, we'll say October through January. But um, when they looked at different regions in the United States, how are folks grieving or how are they dealing with grief of others? between 61 and 70% of respondents. So this is again, spread across the country, but the majority, the vast majority of people said they don't know what to say or do when someone they care about is grieving. And even that knowledge I think is really helpful because truly most people you're gonna encounter when you're grieving don't know what to say or do. And then the psychoed piece for me is to like kind of warn clients, hey, here's the stupid stuff that people might say, the at least or God oh, only gives us as much as you can handle or whatever <laughs> it is. A better like, place. Yes. Whatever yeah. the platitudes are of like, well, that path wasn't meant for you. Like, you know, whatever it is, because I think that psychoed is really important of like, yeah, here's the stupid stuff that might get said to you that people mean well, but they really don't know how to deal with this. And it's okay to close your ears like, and know that that person just simply can't hold space. Um, I think that's a big element. It's just the normalization and the psychoed. For sure. For, and that made me think about like how we have like limousines that are tinted, you know, when people are riding through the, that, that kind of creates that element of like, this should be a secret. You know, this is, it is a private and it is a vulnerable you know, delicate situation. But I think that 
black window and like all black it can it, it makes it kind of like okay this should be something done in secret you know and also how we sort of um you know add the makeup onto the bodies to restore the body the corpse i guess you would call it to it restoring it back to its lifelike state that's also a way that we can practice that denial of death yeah you know well, and, and denial of change that, you know, when we're looking at this from a very Western perspective, we don't care much for change. Um, and other cultures, more ancient cultures had a, have and had a much more holistic perspective about the changing of the seasons, about change being an integrated and expected part of life, and not just about life and death, but that things will come, things will go, people will come into our lives, they will leave. Um, relationships ebbing and flowing and opportunities or pain. And the very Western perspective of like, if you're experiencing pain, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which, uh-oh, right. turns Avoid out. Avoid pain. <laughs> yeah. Avoid pain at all costs. Yeah. What you just named some of the kind of customs that impact our cultural perspectives of grief and loss, what are some other social norms that are either positively helping us process grief or that are inhibiting us? You know, the platitudes, like we already mentioned that that's generally not helping us, but some people don't know what to say. So they say what I call the stupid stuff. <laughs> I think the, um, this is a big one, like the pot, the work policies, like that you have, like you mentioned, having an allotted amount of time giving to given to people, I think that hurts our understanding of grief because that creates an expectation that when I come back, I should be back at 100%. And yeah, I should feel better and like have it sorted out and figured out. So that's like, that's like a systemic work, you know, policy structure that hurts our, you know, just attitudes about grief and our processing around it. Also that, that platitude of, Oh my gosh, they are they were so strong. You didn't even cry at the funeral. Like just be strong. That that just trips me out when I hear people say like just be strong after like their loved one died or something. Like what is like you didn't even cry. Just kind of discourage basically like crying is bad. Yeah. And Feeling not is crying is good. Yeah. Yeah, releasing is bad. Owning, naming emotion is bad. And holding it in and not crying means you're strong and you're good. That doesn't help either, you know. I think the this the conversations around emotions and emotional intelligence and, you know, I think all that stuff is really helpful. And you see more just the, the generation and time that we're in, we're getting more attuned to our emotions and more respect around attachment and my who's my person, what are my needs. All that stuff is wonderful because it, it just names and validates our humanity and our emotional world. So for folks that are operating in a paradigm where you got six days of bereavement leave, let's say, right, and you for whatever reason that is. And, and often in our culture, the only acceptable, and that's in air quotes, acceptable reason to grieve is like death. But as we've been talking about, we grieve a lot more stuff than just death. Um, mm -hmm. If you're in a system like ours, it doesn't really allow 
often a whole lot of space. How do we make space to feel what we feel and to grieve when we are so expected in this kind of puritanical, keep a step of our lip, don't complain, just carry on, just keep swimming? (laughs) Right, right. I would say uh, looking at our relationship with our emotions in general, you know, learning mindfulness, but then like containing it. So saying, okay, I'm not going to go there at work. You know, I'm not going to have a, but sometimes we can't predict when our grief hits us. But my suggestion is to contain that as much as possible. So say like maybe 20 minutes in the evening, I'm going to journal or I'm going to give give time to take a, a grief walk or something like that. Or I'm going to practice a ritual that my loved one enjoyed or something like that. Um, also, maybe on your lunch break, giving yourself time to practice mindfulness or practice a meditation or something like that. Also knowing like that not everyone is going to grieve the same way. Looking at your beliefs about grief, if you have an exp- and that's where that linear stage model is not helpful for us. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, such an amazing piece of work. However, it was that those five stages in her research was only about death and dying. It it didn't highlight just changes in life, you know, the loss of a, a divorce where we're still alive, but things are just different now. So I think maybe processing or exploring some of our beliefs about death and letting go of maybe some outdated beliefs like that I should be over this uh, in a few years or there's an end date to this. Also self-care, like making sure we're we're still tending to our lives and uh, attending to that adjustment process. The Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the most po- common approach to grief in the Western world, but there's also like the dual process model and the growing around grief model that are, I think, are a little bit more process and lifestyle oriented. And they sort of acknowledge like, yeah, you have grief, but yeah, life's still going on. So how, how, what do I, how can I adjust to my new normal? So if someone, I got six days of time off and then I got to go back to work, how can I adjust to my new life now while still holding space with this emotion? It's like a dual process going on. As we're having this conversation recording, we're in November of 2022 and we're still in a pandemic. People are still getting sick. People are still passing away. And as we talk about this now, there are hundreds of thousands of children in the United States who have lost a loved one due just to COVID or its complications. And I mean, at least for our lives, this is a time where grief has been front and center and not just because of death um, and illness, but there's been so much um, political and social upheaval so much suffering, so much pain, so much isolation, that it it doesn't surprise me to hear and to read that Americans like so I was reading research from 2021, that at least at that point, 36% of Americans didn't even feel like celebrating the holidays last year. Like, so you I mean, that's a big number. That's over a third of the people you interact with that you're like, happy holidays. They're like, "Hmm, hmm." (laughs) yeah, Uh Mm -hmm. it's it's just this backdrop of grief that my joke has been, you know, if technology isn't working, I'm like, well, it is 2022. I think 
all of us have kind of given up a little bit at this point, you know, because everybody's been through so much. There's been so much grief. There's been so much suffering, so much isolation and not just the death, you know, how many jobs were lost, how many opportunities, how many people's um, housing changed, how many people had to move away because of opportunities that came or left. It's just so many changes. And then we roll into a season where we're, I think, expected to be happy. And it, it just feels really stark, that background. Like, I think there are times of prosperity, you know, for different groups and different times in society. But when I talk to colleagues in other countries, this this is not generally a time of happiness and prosperity in the world. Like, I don't no one's really doing well. Right. Yeah. Sounds like that collect collective grief yeah. is what you just described. One of the statistics that I was reading was that parents of children who are younger than 18, um, almost half of those parents who have younger children are saying that they don't feel like celebrating the holidays because of a sense of grief. And also in terms of ethnic and racial groups, Hispanic folks were the most likely of those interviewed to say that they didn't feel like celebrating the holidays due to grief and loss. And that's a whole socio-political conversation about what is that that's happening in various cultures that's contributing to this. But I guess what I'm saying is, if you as a listener are not feeling it, turns out a lot of people around you aren't either. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a... Uh... And is that okay? Yeah. So you you brought up a point which was basically giving a client permission to just not go. How do you facilitate those conversations? What are the options? Because particularly around the holidays for many of us, regardless of religion or spirituality or denomination, there's often some sense of obligation to show up with a casserole to hang the Christmas lights to get together and light the menorah, whatever it is. How do we carve out permission to imagine a holiday season that is different than what society has told us? Yeah. So I'm going back to my drawing board of cope ahead skills. I think it can look like maybe honoring both truths. Like I'm not in this 100%. I'm not really feeling it this year. And then my family, we also have this tradition where we've done this every year. So that that means like plan doing like I'm going to do an hour at the house with the family. And then after that, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, it means I'm not going to spend the whole time at the party. I'll just, you know, pop in and connect and then go somewhere else. Or it can look like uh, I'm going to volunteer, you know, um, in addition to going to be with my family, that volunteer is like, you know, just maybe being exposed to other people who (laughs) can share that feeling with you or who don't have this year. Something about helping others does get our mind off of our own stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a catharsis in being around other folks who may be hurting as well. You know, like, it's okay. You know, they're here too. We don't all have to be happy on this day. Kind of going back to the statistics, like a lot of us aren't feeling it this year. And I think that's part of mindfulness is acceptance, you know, because I think that's like it feels like a very U.S. thing where it's like 
we want to be productive, happy, goal oriented, like just always on and like instead of like present with what is sometimes. So, yeah, I think like doing half and half. It's been my experience with grief and I've certainly had the conversation with clients too. You know, you had mentioned crying. Our culture really, well, and certain subsets within our culture really value not crying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if yes. you cried, then you were weak or you were doing it wrong. <laughs> um, and 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 some some folks also, I you know, I I have people in my life that like they, they, it physically hurts when they cry. So even if they're grieving, they don't enjoy that. It's not cathartic for them. So I don't want to say like, hey, crying's the best thing ever. Um, but also I think making space in that idea of coping ahead for now is a time I'm just going to let myself cry. Yeah, I'm going to go into that meeting and I'm going to keep it together and that's okay. And maybe, maybe I need to look down for a minute because something comes up. And then afterwards, I'm going to let myself go in the bathroom. I'm going to cry for a while and that's going to be okay. Um because as you said, we've all been trained in the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross model. And so we're talking about the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and then acceptance. But number one, grief is nonlinear. That model was designed specifically for loss, for, you know, for death, but also for anticipated death. So like it wasn't a reactive death. That was if someone's you know, diagnosed with some critical illness or whatever it is, it's taking them away. How do we anticipate their death coming? But also that that that's only one model that can be misinterpreted and also may not work for that person and the individuality associated with grieving. Exactly. And yeah, in therapy, like I said, that's why you have people from different cultures who they'll feel guilty if they don't like not participating with the tribe can bring on these feelings of shame and where it's like, we don't do that. Okay. I'm not going to take that away from you because I do want to be culturally sensitive and respectful. So I think it's like, yeah, like that middle path, like my needs and then the needs of the tribe, I can maybe try and honor both. One of the things that I've heard come up with clients is, is, okay, it's all well and good for me to say I'm only going to stay for an hour. Yeah. Then what do I say to leave? Or how do I plan ahead to be able to leave? What are your ideas on that? How do we support clients? Because it's like, well, I don't want to lie. You know, I don't, I don't want to say I have to go into the <laughs> office or I have a meeting or whatever it is. But it's like, how do I also set boundaries around basically, th this is what my bandwidth is right now. And I really don't want to go into it with you, aunt so-and-so, you know, <laughs> like, I just, I got a jet. How do you encourage clients to think about an advanced plan? Here's what you're going to say. Here's, here's how it's, how you're going to create these boundaries so that you can jet after an hour. <laughs> yeah, such a good question. And I think this is definitely something good for clients and therapists to, to explore together or for people to role play or play around with together. But um, I always think like naming our boundary from the front end, starting with a positive intention, like, hey, it's so good to see you. Um, this is just an example. It's so good to see you. I just wanted to let you know I have some other plans, so I won't be able to stay for the full thing. Um, yeah, and I, I want to connect with you as much as possible, but I do have some other plans. And if they ask you what those plans are, you know, you can decide how much of the truth you feel comfortable telling. 
I appreciate that permission because it has been my experience that sometimes setting that boundary feels really scary and we feel like we need to either tell too much or like we have to lie. And so it's okay to just say, I have other plans. And maybe that plan is to get the freezer burned ice cream from the bottom of the freezer and put on my old pajamas and rock back and forth and cry for a while. You know, and it's like, well, that is your plan. (laughs) So you're not lying. That is really your plan. You just don't tell them what it is. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you want to say I got their holiday plans and then also add some containment around that, like. I'm going to sit in this emotion for an hour and then I'm going to get up and take a walk. I would encourage some kind of moving of the body if if possible for people or some kind of moving of the mind or heart, you know, if they can't move physically, not just being when we want to contain it because that's when that emotion can kind of turn into this suffering thing where we're just maybe holding on to it, you know. We want to contain it for ourselves. In the DSM, we have these um, parenthetical ends. This, you know, we're going to put a period around bereavement, quote unquote. We're going to put a definition around grief, and then there's this nebulous territory past that, where it's like, is it an adjustment disorder, quote unquote? Is it grief? And knowing that as we're talking about this conversation about diagnosis, this is operating in a very Western system of pathology and insurance and medical management. So like, obviously, that huge caveat, how do you discern when you're looking at quote, unquote, grief or bereavement? And when you're looking at depression with a side of grief and bereavement? I think I distinguish the grief when it's attached to like a loss or a threat of loss. That's when it's like, it feels like a grief thing. And then a depression thing feels a little bit more like overarching, like this just general sad, you know, um, can be from childhood. I don't know what the root cause of it is, but it's not really tied to like a loss per se or a threat of a loss or a change in my life, you know? So that's kind of how I distinguish it. So it sounds like for you, it's less about this very um, defined timeline that the DMS or DSM would give us, which, you know, there, if we're going to look at a diagnosis, there has to be some kind of parameters that we're using for that determination. So I'm not knocking that, but it is interesting from a diagnostic perspective of like, when is it this? When is it that? And as you brought up earlier too, there are some kinds of grief that they may have always been rolling in the background and it was this particular holiday get together that you went, darn it, this was not how family was supposed to look. (laughs) I got a bum deal. And so it wasn't because something happened. It was maybe something changed within you and you recognize like, hey, there was that movie or my friend's house or my neighbor. And that's how I thought my holidays were going to look. And then now I don't and I come here and I feel empty. And like that these are all shades of grief, but also that sometimes fine line about what is depression. There's a really great book called The Alchemy of Grief. And it, it it explores grief from like a psychodynamic perspective. And it talks about in therapy, as clinicians, like we're observing the process of grief all the time, like clients are 
like letting go of old belief systems. Like there are so many elements and clients that are dying every single week in therapy. And on a, on a scientific biological level, our cells die daily and our, we get new cells and we have dead hair on our, on our, on our head that's dead, you know, like, so I think you can get kind of metaphorical with it. Like, well, clients, are letting go of things all the time in therapy and saying things are dying all the time. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. And that yes, psychodynamic, but almost trans theoretical in this idea that we're almost in a perpetual state of grief, depending on how you wanted to define it. Yes. But, and I feel like you and I have been talking about kind of this secondary uh, reaction that us as a culture have had about loss which is like this fear about loss. But I think if we can start to heal like our secondary responses to loss and maybe uh, replacing that with kind of this acceptance and knowing like this trust that, oh, this is that human thing again. Like, oh, yeah, I am human. Pinch me. I am real. (laughs) You know, it's kind of that reminder. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that idea of the theme I'm hearing from you is just kind of normalization to get away from this really idealized version of how something should be with a mindfulness of what actually is. And then it sounds like this element that you're adding, which is kind of the case management about being proactive to cope ahead, to set those boundaries, to hold the boundaries. Um, and I think, I think really to anticipate that this is sometimes really going to hurt and you're going to feel different. And at least for me, like what I tell clients, regardless of whatever that specific grief is, is like, sometimes you're going to feel numb. Sometimes you're going to feel fine. Sometimes you're going to be crying for no reason. Maybe you're not going to do any of those things. Like, and it's like, or it's all the things at once. <laughs> um, and that, that those are okay. And I, I think, I think just that opens up. Oh, it's okay. It's okay for me to feel what I feel. Um, you talked earlier about individual factors that contribute to our experiencing of, of grief and loss, those kind of biopsychosocial factors. What are the things that we as therapists really need to be paying attention to that make folks maybe more likely to have really acute experiences of grief? Yeah. Um, I would say their attachment style just where they're at there and how they view their emotions in general. Like what is their general relationship like with their emotions? And something that's really important too is like their family of origin stuff around grief and loss. Like what did their family believe and practice with grief and loss at home? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, using that attachment lens of looking at their attachment style that can help you identify any anxiety there, which I think is a a big component of grief for some of us is anxiety. And it can kind of maybe highlight if there's any feelings of abandonment as well. Um, But yeah, those things and the number of losses, if they've, how many losses they've experienced. The other thing that's occurring to me is the importance of social network. You had already mentioned you're a big fan of grief support groups because of 
the shared experience and I think the making sense. And in the recent interview that we had released with Dr. Irv Yalom, he talks about also the idea of death anxiety and how that kind of existential experience of our humanity plays out in grief and loss. And he was specifically talking about death. But I think that, you know, as we've talked about, there are lots of layers of this kind of the, the constant state of dying that we're in um, mm-hmm. and and observing the things that are maybe protective, knowing that folks who have a stronger social support system may be better able to find help, find nurturance, find love, find support and folks who are more isolated because of their socioeconomic status, because of their community and who they are as an individual because of their age. I mean, if we're looking at grief and loss, um, working with older adults, so much loss. And, you know, I, I was reflecting on how some of my, my family members who were in their 70s, 80s, how many people they've already lost that they're celebrating holidays without they, you know, the empty chair phenomenon. Right. And I don't mean the empty chair spin yeah. technique, but the phenomenon of <laughs> looking around a table or looking at in your phone at your contacts and names falling off because of your life stage. And that those factors are also contributing to how visceral this experience could be for somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it can get very existential, and I think it's helpful for clinicians to sort of look at their beliefs about death, like kind of adjust that, like no, not, not hold themselves to this expectation that they need to help clients get to that final acceptance stage, and then they're wiping their hands clean of the client, like... We did it. <laughs> of, uh, right, like accepting that idea, like this is a process, this is a lifelong journey, and I'm here to help them you know, orient themselves to the their emotions differently. And that includes their grief. And two other things that also impact how people will experience it is the type of loss and how prepared they were for it or not. Can you speak to that a little bit more in, in terms of an anticipated loss versus an unanticipated loss and how that affects our grieving process? Sure. I think when it when it's anticipated, you know, we're just it's more up close in our face. It's it it's a little bit more personal and real and I think our mind has more time to orient ourselves to sort of slowly adjusting to this person maybe being out of our lives physically. And then when it's sudden, you know, just depending on where we're at in our lives, it can just be very disorienting to our, our routine. Um, and then if if someone doesn't have that relationship with their emotions that's in place, it can really set people off and throw people over. So yeah, absolutely. And then the type of loss, that's just, that's just a lot, you know, depending on how if someone kills themselves by suicide, takes their own life, or if it's a that was that person chose that. So you have to kind of process, you know, that acceptance around, wow, this person chose to do that versus if it's a medical condition. Okay, that was out of their control. That was out of their hands. So those little, those things can add more nuance to how we process this. And you can see how trauma can easily sneak up in there if there's like a loss of control or helplessness in there. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm thinking about other types of grief if we're talking about job loss. 
sometimes we may anticipate it or maybe it was a job that we were trying to get and we didn't. And so maybe we're almost prepared for the possibility of not getting it versus a mass layoff versus an unexpected um, situation where you're let go and suddenly you're sitting with financial strain and uncertainty in housing and that there are so many, as you said, nuances to what's coming up. If folks have had in utero trauma too, or just stuff when they were babies and toddlers, those parts don't die in our, in our personalities. They don't go anywhere. So if those parts are stuck in time and really scared and really terrified, extremely frightened, a new loss is going to trigger that young part, you know, and free in utero trauma is obviously it's harder to identify. So sometimes we're walking around with parts that are hurt and terrified that we we're not really cognizant about. How do you talk? Oh, I have a very specific question. Um, how do you talk to clients about these concepts, like the nuances that you just talked about, particularly when they are deeply under the influence of don't talk, don't feel? I will therapeutically point out, you know, it, it's, I have, it, I'm sensing you have a strong thinking part that protects you possibly. What's it protecting you from? You know, I'll be very therapeutic, very gentle, and I, I will also give psychoeducation. You know, society often does not want us to feel pain. Have you noticed that? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about society, and then I'll say, you know what, in here, I don't, that's not my rule in here. I, I need us to feel, I want, your feelings are allowed in here. You know, and kind of, I, I'll go the society route, psychoeducation. I'm thinking back to what you had said earlier about the idea of disenfranchised grief. And mm -hmm. one of the other things that came up for me in thinking about that word is like, for the folks who simply feel disenfranchised in a system, you know, as we talked about, there's been so much upheaval and so much pain, often that's been there for a long time for generations. And then now we see very clear examples of it. And you know, we have whole groups of people in our culture and our society that have right. had about enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so then there's this whole, so they, they are disenfranchised, but in a different way than what you were referring to, but that that's also a valid grief. You know, I, I think there have been, right. there are certain holidays that can be really um, emotional. Fourth of July, Juneteenth, like, uh, yes quote-unquote Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. Like, oh, that hurts just hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Like the, there, there are also some social norms around how some groups might feel about certain things or what they feel like they want to celebrate and lift and other groups that don't feel celebrated, that don't feel lifted, and even the importance of making space for that and the juxtaposition. Again, like, yes, we're talking about this in the context of these typical winter holidays, if you will, um, fall and winter holidays, but that this this phenomenon stretches far beyond October and January. <laughs> um, and that there is really community grief, as I'm thinking about it, whether that's direct literal community with the people right next to you or a community of people, a population of people that can see the pain and the loss and the fear the suffering that's in the eyes of another group of people. Oof, oof, Dr. Miller, it's a lot. 
So <laughs> I'm going to take my own deep breath because it really is a lot. You had recommended the book, The Alchemy of Grief and kind of the normalization of, of grief as a human experience. And as we're winding up this hour that we've spent together, for clinicians that are wanting to do a little bit more of a deep dive into grief in general or grief, particularly juxtaposed against these more um, supposedly joyous uh, times in our lives, how do they do that? What resources do you recommend? Are there particular trainings? Are there websites? Where do you go? Yeah, I would, um, Jill, is it Jill Johnson Young? Yes. I love her <laughs> website. She has a great blog and information about grief. I, I would also recommend No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz. That's Internal Family Systems. That That just helps clients get more oriented around the parts of them that can be holding the grief or even the parts of them that don't want to feel, you know, that there, there could be several sessions just spent on, you know, exploring the protective parts of them that don't feel comfortable grieving. You know, we, that's a part, um, that probably internalize a lot of beliefs from society. So that takes a while to like unpack those beliefs and those, those ways of thinking, stuff like that. So yeah, no bad parts, anxiety, the missing stage of grief, anything on mindfulness. I think DBT can help clinicians get comfortable with their own emotions and teaching clients mindfulness to deal with the stuff as it comes up. And yeah, I would suggest practicing at least one to three minutes of mindfulness in session, doing little exercises, because I think that's going to improve our emotional intelligence about how to handle emotions in general. I know this this conversation is not the most electric and it's it is heavier and you know, but yeah, that's what is. Um so yeah, but that that that's those are my suggestions. For folks who are listening who want to learn more particularly about you or get in touch with you and learn more about your work, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, they can visit Highland Park Holistic Psychotherapy. Um, I have a, a page on there in my group practice or my Instagram, Dr. London Miller underscore. Those are the two platforms or TikTok. I'm on there as well. So yeah, I'd be happy to connect with, with new people. And I think there's a temptation to wrap sessions up in a nice bow, but I'm still going to, I'm still going to just, I'm kind of going to do that though here. Like, yeah, like we've lost a lot. There's a lot of loss with COVID and everything, but pinch me, we are still here. So what do we have left? Like, what is there to be grateful? What's, how do we want to live? You know, you're still here. Why? You know, so I did tie it in a bow. <laughs> Would <laughs> No, I, but there's not a but. And I think that ending is so poetic and that, I'm I'm really grateful for your time and having this conversation because it is it is a hard conversation to have and when we feel really pressured by society to um really give way to the sparkle look at all the bright lights um it sometimes feel like we don't give ourselves permission to hurt and I'm grateful for your work in really making a deliberate space where it's okay to hurt. And yes, it doesn't necessarily feel good. It's an, it's a right. part of the human experience and it is exactly what exactly. is. Um, so thank you as we kind of tie up 
our year, which has been a really big year, even for Clearly Clinical. Thank you for joining us and having this conversation um, and putting this really unique bow on it. I couldn't be more grateful. Oh, I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with you. Yeah, I'm I'm a rebel at heart, so <laughs> I'm not about avoiding pain and you know going towards pl- like nah. That's what the powers that be say we need to do. Nah, let's let's be human. You know, let's challenge the system. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Miller. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.